0: This is a test of the Boundary Park Alert System. Hello, and welcome to episode 28 now of the Boundary Park Alert System with me, Matt Dean. This week, I am joined by Andy Halliwell. Hi, Andy. Hello, Matt. And Will Goff. Hello, Will. Good evening. Good evening. So it's Saturday night. We've watched the match. Uh, We'll have a quick chat about the match. And then coming up, we've got an interview that Andy did with the chair of Bees United, which is the Brentford Supporters Trust. So um, we'll find out a bit more about that a little bit later on. But yeah, uh, Will, you said uh, just before I press record, how are you doing? And you were like, you know, you weren't too full of beans after that last two hours. I, I presume you were talking about the match, not the two hours in between the match finishing and and now. What did you make of the game, Will?
1: Uh, I struggled to keep my attention. We're at that point in the season now, aren't we? Where It just doesn't mean anything. I just want it over and done with now. <laughs> that's where I'm at. <laughs>
0: It's was not really that much to do with the the actual game, was it? More to do with your exasperation at the season. Yeah. I mean, the game,
1: it wasn't totally terrible, but it it wasn't great. It was just a nothing match. A couple of really, really poor defensive mistakes. Yeah. Um, We played some good
0: football, though, didn't we? I thought we did play some pretty good stuff. Going forward, we knocked it about quite well. We do look like for me, we look, the last couple of games. We look like a better side. Unfortunately, the lads that are in the team are just so prone to making mistakes and they're just so far off the finished article that no matter how how well you, you they might play as a, as a collective for, for the for most of the game, like I thought they did today, to be fair. I think until he made the substitutions, I thought that we looked all right until they made the substitutions, then it was kind of like we kind of lost our way.
1: Um we were already 2-0 down at that point.
0: Exactly. We we were already we were already kind of out of the game. But yeah, I mean, I think the overriding point, and, and I didn't really want to talk too much about the game today, because like like you've already alluded to, what's there to talk about? You know, it is what it is. Uh, we're not we're not going up, we're not going down. We're seven we, we can't be shifted from 17th. <laughs> We've been there for I don't know how many for the last I hope many weeks now, no matter what we do, whether we yes. win, draw, lose. We're in seventeen, and it really has got nothing to do this season now with with anything. It's just again look forward to next season and 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 hope that it's going to be better than this. Which of course there is no grounds to believe that that is going to be the case. Did you watch it today, Andy yourself? Or uh, I
2: listened to it again like like last week. I didn't I didn't watch it because I was moving around, but I had it. In, I had the commentary on my ears throughout the. Sort of entirety of the match. I've seen the goals on on Twitter on, online, uh, awful defensive mistakes. I was quite surprised to see Nicky Adams passing it across his 18 yard line. That seemed, for someone of, of his experience, seemed a yeah. bit, uh, you know, you sort of expect the young lads to make a mistake every now and again. And Harry Clark was just, I guess, doing what an under 23 year old Premier League fancy Dan does, which is trying to play his way out of trouble when really she just smacked it into Roe J. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Nicky Adams was a bit of a surprise, sort of a, uh, uh, an older, experienced low league head shouldn't be doing that, really. But yeah, a bit like Will, you know, it's it's petering out in it because there's not a lot uh, really on the line, and it and, and it's a it's a difficult watch. And uh, the, the, the the obvious things the obvious things to say are, you know, we haven't got a focal point up front, really, have we? And and you know, we, there was quite a lot of like you said, it's quite a few passages of play that sounded fine, and I've seen again some of the highlights again where balls were put into the box. Uh, in the first half and there was just no one attacking it it was just just into space he, you know there's just obvious obvious gaps in, in the team centre forward you know you can say Danny Rowe wasn't a hold up man he wasn't a hold up man out and out number nine but he was a focal point at least in some games uh, so there's no focal point in the team and obviously you know the obvious centre half alongside, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of Pia Gianni. He's been all right the last few weeks, but, you know, a, a good center, a decent centre-half. And actually, this team might have done something because it, it's got some decent players in and around it, but it's just poor recruitment, poor planning, not thinking about what squad should look like. And like you said, if Mo's in charge of it again next year, we're just spinning the, the roulette wheel, aren't we, hoping that we land on... Yeah, <laughs> exactly. This, you know, we, we, we win, because otherwise we could end up Spinning the roulette wheel of shit again, and ended up being uh, worse than seventeenth.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think what you alluded to there about the poor recruitment—that's definitely why we are where we are. You know, it's not just the poor recruitment; it's the failing to replace key players that we've let go. You know, we signed a boatload of wingers and chucking them into defensive positions. We've—it's. I mean, it's difficult for Curl because he's probably got a load of players that that don't quite suit his tactics and formations. And without knowing whether he's going to be here next season, he's, he's seeing us out to the end of the season. Is that going to be extended? Are we going to see him next season? So is he, going to, is he working to sort towards something? We don't know.
2: You'd imagine Curl, with his experience in League Two, if he was given uh, a couple of windows and really allowed to recruit players he wanted, not, not just be told who he's signing by Mo, that he'd get us further up the league than where we are now. Within, within the space of 12, 18 months, we should be you know pushing the top seven if he's left alone.
0: Because what he's doing is he's he's, he's he's taken the squad and said, look, this is how I want to play. Obviously, he's not got the kind of quality of players in those positions that he would like. But for me, we're getting a lot of balls. And like you said, we're getting a lot of balls in the box. It's just that you know we're, we're crossing. <laughs> the height difference is like, there's like a two-foot height difference between our strikers and the average league two centre-half. Um in the wrong in the wrong direction. So they're never going to win these headers. They, if if they're going to put balls in, they're going to have to get to the byline and cut them across so that the lads can have a chance at finishing with their feet rather than with their heads. But you know, I like that style though. I like this style of play. I like, I mean, Badan was getting forward in the first half, put some decent balls in. It's a shame he can't defend. <laughs> um, so you know, you're looking for more all-round players in those positions. At the minute, it's kind of like making do you'd need a proper centre-forward in there, someone who's going to be in the box getting their head on things and that kind of stuff. I'd be quite happy with with Curl building a squad to play this way if he had the right players to play it. It seems like to me like it could be quite good, could get a good balance between being quite solid at the back but actually being quite good going forward. But again, it all like you said, it all comes down to recruitment, what's going to happen, we don't know, speculation, blah, blah, blah. So as I was thinking about in the preparation for, for today's podcast, I thought this was going to sort of lead on nicely to to, to to the interview that Andy did, because at the end of the day, we are never going to progress on the pitch until we are settled and working properly off the pitch. It's just, it doesn't happen the other way around. You don't get success on the pitch, followed by boardroom, backroom, all that kind of stuff, security. Secure. It doesn't work that way. We have to get settled and sorted first before we'll get success on the pitch. So... Andy, you've been very diligent over recent weeks in looking at people to interview and talk talk to, and you have been in touch with the chair of Brentford Supporters Association. Just give us a very very quick introduction to him because he'll introduce himself on the on the interview that you did. But just uh, who have we got coming up?
2: Stuart Purvis is um, the chap we're gonna we're gonna hear from. Uh, so he is chair of Bees United, which is Brentford FC's supporters trust.
0: And what was it that, that made you want to reach out to him to, to arrange this interview?
2: Myself, yourself and, and Steve Shipman, uh, particularly, have been looking at um people or companies um and, and businesses that we want to talk to. And, and we've got a target list of um, clubs, haven't we? So that's clubs that have either, are either fan-owned, part-fan-owned, have been fan-owned, or have come through uh, a period of strife in their history and overcome it, maybe, or maybe not overcome it, still struggling with it, just so we can try and understand some of their... Uh, backstories and see what we can learn in that process and uh, I know a bit about Brentford as might become apparent and they had a very difficult period maybe 10 years ago and 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 what I like about the story is it, it's in effect a good story so it's an enla- it's a heartwarming story of what could be achieved if we put our minds to the right things
0: okay well let's have a listen then
2: let welcome Stuart Purvis to the Boundary Park Alert System podcast. Stuart is, uh, correct me if I get any of this wrong, Stuart, you are chairman of Bees United, which is the Brentford FC Supporters Trust. And as a result of that chairmanship, you are also the appointed non-exec director of Brentford Football Club on behalf of your supporters.
3: Absolutely correct. Yeah, I've been in the job two years, both as the chairman of the trust and their representative on the board. And actually, I confirmed last night with the Football Supporters Association that we are the only supporters group in the Premier League or the Championship to have a director on a club board.
2: Well, uh, we we also uh, Oldham Athletic has the has, has the same position. So a member of our trust is also appointed to the board of directors of the football club. Uh, I, I didn't realise that there were so few in the yeah. higher echelons of the football league. That, that's good to hear. If maybe we could start just a little bit about you and your background and uh, you know professional background, and how you became. Into the position that you hold today? I was actually born a mile
3: from the ground, so I grew up uh, in in the immediate area, but actually, like many people in London, moved around London. And I had a pretty full on career in television. I was the editor of ITN and various other television jobs. And it was really only when I kind of half retired that I was standing at Brentford one day and a guy came up to me who I knew him. He used to be a Fleet Street editor, and he said, "Are you interested in Brentford?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "He told me about this group, which, in truth, I hadn't really heard much about." And um, within two years, I was somehow the chairman. The club were probably happy to have me on the board because I brought something to it from the world of television and media, so they were sort of accepting of me. I'd be intrigued to know what they would have thought if I, you know, if I, in their view, didn't offer anything but there wasn't anything they could have done about it because there was basically a deal that whoever Bees United nominated would be on the board.
2: Yes. And was was your predecessor, by any chance, was it Brian uh, Brian Burgess? Well, Brian Burgess, to me,
3: was the kind of guiding spirit and light behind Bees United. But, and this, this will become a bit clearer as we kind of go through the history of it, he sort of became the club at one point when Bees United owned the club. And a guy called David Merritt was actually running Bees United. And he was a management consultant by background, so it brought quite a lot of expertise. So they were sort of working in tandem, if that makes sense. And it was David who's
2: 11 years or 12 years it would have been, uh, were up and who sort of handed it over to me. Uh, as, as we'll come through to talk about the history, Bees United has been uh, around quite a long time. It's probably one of the earliest, from what I can see, the research has done one of the earliest supporters trusts, uh, true supporters trusts. It's been around 2001, I think it was formed. Is that, is that right?
3: It's our 20th anniversary in June. Um, and so a few months ago, I published on the trust behalf a book about our history, focusing on the role that the fans of Brentford played in the creation over 20 years of a new stadium. So that was the peg. I suppose football and property, as you're discovering at Oldham, sort of go together a lot, don't they? They do. And, <laughs> and kind of that's how this whole thing started. I think a little bit of bureaucracy, but it may, it may be relevant. Actually, the supporters club which is Brentford Independent Association of Supporters Bias, they formed Bees United. And it's kind of interesting to wonder why they did that. I think they did it to create as a kind of pressure group, separate from themselves, which could focus on certain issues, if not in a like get in the way of the day-to-day issues as a supporter club. So I think that was quite an inspired idea. So even to this day, there is a supporters club, Bias, and there is us, Bees United, with a seat on the board. You know, that... Could go wrong if I'm honest, but it, it doesn't. I mean, well, it, that's, is, that's, it is a sort of subtlety worth understanding. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I and I've been doing my research. I, I, I happen, uh, I happen also uh, to be to be local. I, I live in West London now, and so oh, Brentford, right. Brentford is actually the closest club to my house. So I I, I, I'm I am aware of um, of a little bit of Brentford's history. But maybe maybe let's let's go through the chronology then, if you don't mind. So I'd like to transport yeah. you back yeah. to 1993. And uh, I think if I get this right, your owner at this time was a gentleman called Martin Lang or Martin Lange. And you had just been relegated at the end of the 92-93 season to what is now the third, League One in new money, so the the, the third division in old money. And Martin Lange appointed David Webb to be your new manager at the beginning of the 93-94 season.
3: We have to be careful what we say because of lawyers, because Mr (laughs) Webb... Had views about what was said at the time. But I suppose the best way of putting it is it, it began a process of disillusionment amongst the fans with the ownership and management of the club and certain things were going on. And it I think it, probably the best thing to be said about, about three of the owners of the period is that they probably all spotted that because like many football clubs in big cities, Brentford was in the middle of a residential area, or well, Griffin Park was in the middle of a residential area, yeah. and there was a pr- probably a property deal to be done at some point. Yeah, And under one of these owners, Ron Nodes, he began an, a, an idea of moving the ground to a place called Woking in Surrey. Now, with all respect to the good people of Woking, you know, it has a football club of a kind, actually, it's a bit of a nowhere place, and it's nowhere near Brentford. So basically the fans began a campaign against moving the ground and instead focused on creating a new ground. Believing, I think, that as you know, although Griffin Park was and for many people still is a sort of beloved site, it was always going to be a bit of a sort of potential player and a property deal uh, and that we, we needed a new and a better stadium. And so the, the key moment really is when having Bees United having been formed and the fans having opposed the move to Woking, Ron Nodes was clearly getting fed up with owning Brentford. It's worth saying that the name Ron Nodes might mean more to some people as the owner of Crystal Palace for a time. And, And at one point, Nodes was also the manager of the team.
2: Well, uh, well, I, I, I was, in terms of the chronology. If we, if we get, I'll, I'll skip through this bit. Maybe correct me if I get this wrong. So, Ma- Martin Lange w- was your owner in, in '93. David Webb was was your manager. You actually for the next couple of seasons, David Webb on face value did okay. You got into the playoffs a couple of years, yeah. um, and then curiously, David Webb then uh, moved from manager to owner of the football club under a consortium of three people. And in that particular season, which I think was 1997 uh, when he took, took ownership of the club, you ended up getting relegated at the end of that season once he purchased the club from Martin Lang. And really that that, from the history, seems to be the point at which... Um, Brentford fans became mobilised. And then it, it, is, it is at the end of that season that Ron Nodes purchased the club from David Webb, which is the, yeah. the, the bit that you're then describing, isn't it? That's right. The common link was a, a, a breakdown in trust, a complete breakdown
3: in trust. I mean, you can say on a day to day basis, football fans fall in and out of love with their owners the whole time. But when you can't actually just trust their goodwill, that they're actually maybe up to something, that's that I think was the breaking point, yeah. Um, and when nodes began to do the sort of things that Webber have been doing, and actually, to be honest, uh, and if you want to go further back, there was another owner, actually, a chairman called Jack Dunnett, who was an MP, who tried to merge the club with Queen's Park Rangers and yeah. actually, uh, you know, sh- sell Griffin Park again for, for property value. Yeah. So it was this combination of, of owners who, they, who couldn't be trusted by the fans that led to the fans almost taking action
2: into their own hands. Yeah. If we then talk about, so, so Ron knows, yeah, yes, I think he, he would be most famously known for owning Crystal Palace for a while. He's now owner of, of Brentford. It's 1997 or thereabouts. Actually, he, was quite, he seemed quite popular amongst Brentford fans for a while, at least. He, he was chairman, owner and first team manager. He had all of these roles at this
3: stage. Yes, not not always simultaneously, but but, but sometimes simultaneously. The supporters of Ron Nodes would say that many of the unusual tactics he deployed uh, off the field uh, were to try to get the council to do a deal. Uh, Others will say he was trying to do a deal to enrich himself. So, you know, there is no kind of agreed views, but most fans would take a kind of negative view of what his maneuverings were all about. But you know, Andy, I think one th- one theme that comes out of this period in the club, and again, I'm sure guys that you're in can can, rec- can you know will n- understand some of this. When you look back through summer histories of Brantford, all that appears is whether we went up or down in the league. Yes. What they don't chronicle is you know how much debt the, cl- the club was in, what other sort of catastrophes were going on off the field, and I think that's you know y- yes, you could look at it as we people were happy because we were going up, and they were unhappy when we we're going down. But the core of the club, the core of the business, if you like, was always on on fragile ground. Yeah. And 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 really what Bees United did was to focus on that, to be honest, rather than going up or down. Which
2: is a lesson there for everybody, really, isn't it? Um, it is. I, it is. The, 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 the thing, uh, again, I sort of looked at, where Ron was involved with your club, actually, for the best part of 10 years in the end, wasn't he? But yeah. from from ninety seven until... The point at which where he began to lose interest was when ITV digital money uh, dried up, something with your history of working for ITM, probably know a bit more about than most. From the reading I've done, he had run up quite a lot of debt, hadn't he, on behalf of Renford Football Club, which he had secured against Griffin Park. And then he'd set up a series of companies that had... Assets in them, and and likewise that we had, which had to be untangled at some stage later.
3: Yeah, I mean, I uh, be honest, I was not involved in in the detail at the time. So, yeah. um, I mean, uh, you know, your your research is, is, is impressive. And again, remembering and again, this is, it may have echoes for you that he was involved in uh, certainly at Crystal Palace. If so I think Crystal Palace to this day, the ground is separate from the football club, if I remember right. Yeah, and certainly this separation, separating of grounds and clubs is a kind of feature of this, these kind of manoeuvrings. I mean, I think you probably characterised that period by people saying, what's that famous sort of London phrase almost like in the, in the North? Ducking and diving. Yeah. There's a lot of ducking and diving going on on who owned what, who was managing what and what their real intentions were. And, and I think Bees United just said, look, we're pretty straightforward. We're Bees fans and we want a, we want a decent stadium. We want, like a decent team.
2: Bees United was formed in 2001. Out of, you, you described, there was, a, there was a fans group called Bias, and there was also a fanzine called Besotted. Yes, like many
3: fanzines, uh, Besotted has, has morphed into uh, a digital, almost like it's a digital complex now, on yeah. podcasts and various things. Yeah. And they were, they are, were very, uh, and, and indeed they were very very good podcasts. and they were very, very outspoken. But if I'm honest, didn't really want to get into the kind of complicated bit. Uh, they were, you know, they were outspoken. They campaigned. I mean, in the book that we published last year, you see these amazing demonstrations in the streets of West London. You see people going down to Woking to demonstrate. I mean, it was real, real supporter activism, again, of a kind that, you know, we now see, you know, in threatened clubs, uh, certainly in northwest of England. But, um, you know, the, the core to it was they were the outspoken bit. But the, the Bees United bit said, so look, you know, we just need to focus on the, on the governance. We need to focus on the money. We need to focus on who owns the ground, who's put in
2: for the planning commission, that kind of stuff. The gubbins, if you like, the plumbing of it all. Yeah. So let's, so let, so let's do that then. So yeah. uh, did, did Ron... So Ron knows these companies owned both Griffin Park and Brentford Football Club. And there was a lot of debt run up, uh, run into the millions of pounds from what, what I can see. And so Bees United agreed a deal in principle to purchase the assets of Ron Nodes' companies from him, from what I can see. Yeah,
3: effectively, uh, Ron Nodes was not the only holder. There were a range of shareholders. I, I mean, you could probably best by saying that Bees United took Brentford off Ron Nodes' hands, like he'd kind of, you could, I'd say, just given up on it. Yeah. He, couldn't, he couldn't make any of these slightly strange schemes work. The debt, as you say, was getting getting worse. The ITV money had gone. And so, you know, these guys, guys, again, I say I wasn't one of them, but I admire their their spirit, their enterprise, everything about them, said, OK, we'll take majority ownership. We won't get rid of all the other
2: shareholders. We'll work with them and we'll run the club. So 2003, Brentford is now being run by its supporters trust. And that carried on for a number of years, didn't it? Brian Burgess, the name you meant, meant, yeah. uh, uh, mentioned earlier, was
3: then the, the key figure in trying to run a football club. Now, in there's a, there's a wonderful film made by its supporters, like everything at Brentford, <clears throat> that's good, called Push Up Brentford, uh, yeah. which I think you've probably seen, Andy. I have seen it. Uh, and, and in that, Brian explains that the, the, the fans uh, were good at running the club in many ways, but they were no good at running a football team. Yeah, And um, I think that is a kind of, again, an interesting lesson. What they did do, was very smart, I think, was to invite in as the chairman stroke frontman, Greg Dyke. Because Greg Dyke uh, had been the uh, director general of the BBC. He brought, if you like, extra credibility to the project because Greg's actually quite a wealthy man in his own right. And he, he and a number of people along the way, whatever, whoever owned the club at the various times, there's a guy called John Hurting, for instance, who's still involved. And John T- Hurting tells... Of getting a phone call from the manager saying that you know the the players haven't been paid this week. Can you send me a check for X thousand pounds? And whoever owned the club, these guys put their hands in their pockets to make sure the players were paid. And indeed, the staff were paid. So you've got you've got it's going on about sort of two or three levels. You've got people who are trying to work out what's the long-term future of the club, people who are just trying to you know sell tickets for a game, and other people who are not necessarily a formal part of this. Are making donations, sometimes loans, to keep things going, and all the time fans are saying, well, "Why haven't we been promoted?" And you're saying, "Well, <laughs> there's sort of quite a lot going on here behind the scenes, guys. just give us a little bit of sort of, uh, you know, give us a little bit of patience." And you know, the saddest story is one guy who you know was a leading member of the trust became the uh, I think the chief executive of the club, and ordered the wrong number of tickets for an away cup game at Southampton and on the basis had to resign. And you thought, Oh, give the guy a break, you know? <laughs> um, and I, I kind of, whenever I see him, I sort of almost apologize on their behalf for what, for what happened. So, so
2: fans are very demanding, even when fans own the club. So yeah. you are running the club day to day, but the land, Griffin Park is still, as far as I'm, as far as my research tells me, is, is owned by Mr. Nodes. And You've got to somehow wrestle that asset from him in order to be able to begin the process of building a new ground. And one of the things that I noted in the, in the Push Up Brentford documentary, which I would encourage any older athletic fan to watch because it's a, it's a lovely watch anyway, but it, it is really educational, is um, Bees United managed to get somebody elected onto the local council with a, with a mandate really to try and push this agenda I agree. It's one of the most interesting parts of the whole story. And it, and it goes back
3: a little bit to when, um, before Bees United took control of the club. Um, and Ron Nodes, do you remember I was saying that Ron Nodes, some of his supporters would say that Ron Nodes was trying to do a deal with the council. Yeah. Uh, and all this curious stuff of going to Woking was all part of, you know, oh, if you don't do a deal, I'll go to Woking sort of stuff. yeah. But, yeah. Anyway, the fans were, let's let's say, sceptical about that, but they came up with a completely different uh, idea, and that was to adopt a tactic, in truth, tried at Charlton first, which was to stand for the local council. So, again, I think it wasn't formally done under the Bees United banner, but it was done by uh, just a group of fans, and and in the book, uh, one of the fans told the story, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful story. Basically, one or two of them had been quite involved in local Labour Party politics and knew how to run a campaign. Yeah. But they pretty much given up on the, the controlling Labour group ever coming to the table, shall we say, and helping out. So what they did was st- st- say, we are going to stand against you and against any other candidate, if you like, in all the wards in the London borough of Hounslow, and particularly in the ward of Brentford. The local Labour Party sort of initially shrugged this off and then it became clear that the candidate uh, running in, Brent, in the Brentford ward was actually making real progress. And there were marches in the streets, you know, leaf- leafleting went well. And then on the night, there were two seats in that ward. The first seat was won by the Labour candidate. And whereas Labour might have expected to win the second seat as well, the Bees candidate, should we call it, won. Was it a shock? I mean, I think, you know, when they started, they never were never sure where they were going to win. I think it was just a way of putting pressure on on the Labour group controlling the council. But when they won, wow, was that a kind of great moment. Luke Curtin, his name was, was voted on to the council. And what's really important is that once Luke got on the council, he did actually make it happen. He actually went to all the right committee meetings. And most crucially, although in truth, the candidates and the other wards didn't actually do terribly well in the votes. The fact that they've done well enough forced the local Labour group to say, we have to take this issue seriously. We have to get interested, to be honest, and we have to see what we can do to help. And then the sort of the next related bit to that is that some fans noticed that there was a piece of land which nobody seemed to want. The reason being because it was a Curiously, a tr- in a inside a triangle of railway lines, can you think about that? There's a railway line going on the top, and there's a railway line coming in, kind of you know, left and right diagonals. And inside there was a kind of nothingness, really, just load of sheds and things. And they said, "Who owns that land?" So they went to the council and said, "We'd like that land." Amazingly, because I think they'd been had just a shock at the polls, the council said, "Okay, we'll help you get it." In the end, they got it, and then they built a stadium on it. Oh,
1: no,
2: it's, 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 it's an amazing story, that, and, and and that new stadium now, which which I pass periodically, is yeah. a beautiful looking sight. Like I said, I ran next to Q Bridge Railway Station as well, because and so perfect for people getting in and out. It's it's a brilliant story. Do, do you know um, whether was Griffin Park used as a makeway in that in that uh, deal? So. Um, so at some stage yeah. it had to be wrestled from Ron Nodes, presumably to be made a make way.
3: Well, this is where we 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 need to to do the sort of transition from fan ownership, fan running the club, fan lobbying, if you like, the council. Yeah. Uh, all of which you know was pretty effectively done to fan owners realizing they weren't really going to take it much further. And you know, when I get involved occasionally, as I do in sort of. Football Supporter Association politics. And people look at saying, say, well, what does the Brent... You, you sort of Brentford guys sort of sold out, didn't you, really? You were running the club and then you gave up control. And the answer was, yeah, OK, you put it that way. Or, or the guys running BG United at the time were just realistic that they could only take the club so far. And the key moment was when Greg Dyke, as I said, was the, the chairman of the, of the trust, um, knew uh, Matthew Benham because Matthew Benham run a what he called what is what is called the football research company. Other people would call it a gambling company. Yeah. Um, and he was a Brentford supporter who had always wanted to own a club, had actually looked at buying Watford at one point. And, and Greg knew he was seriously rich because he was a very big but secret donor to children in need, which was of course on the BBC. Yes, yes. And realising Matthew's wealth, I've never quite worked out how much money he gave the children in need, but it would I think it would shock people and impress people. Greg thought, this is the kind of guy who could really be of help. And so Brian Burgess and Greg Dyke got together with Matthew. And enormously to Matthew's credit, the first money he put into the club, he didn't really get much back in terms of control. He was effectively leaving them to run it, and that the money, if you like, was a – almost an investment or a gamble on his part, to see, is there something here that could be of use to me? And then the more he got into it, the more he got interested, that's when Bees United said, look, wh- why don't we do a deal? Why don't you be- why didn't you take over as the majority owner? Why don't we persuade all the other smaller shareholders to sell their shares to you, to give you effectively 100% ownership? And 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 that's what happened.
2: I believe Matthew Benamon's 96% of the share today, I think when I looked
3: well, if he does, that's, that's probably just a technicality. There's probably a, you know, a small holding company or something like so, that. But he, you know, he has complete control. Complete control. Bees United, do they own any? any? Is, is there a small shareholding? Right. So this is, the, this is the bit that, again, I think is, I'm not saying it's unique, but it's unusual. But I think it's a really, really interesting um, model. So given that Bees United had control of the club, Given that they desperately wanted Matthew to come in and give his money, what could they get out of that deal? And so given that, you know, you had people like the man I mentioned, David Merritt, earlier on, who was a pretty hotshot management consultant and still is. You had people, you had pretty high flying lawyers involved, all, I have to say, doing this totally uh, for nothing. And so they worked out a deal, which is, which is this, okay, you get control of the club. We'll help you sweep up these kind of leftover shareholdings. What we need is protection that you are not going to operate the same kind of property scam that Ron Nodes was trying to pull off. Yeah. And uh, I think probably, you know, in some ways, you know, Ron Nodes may have been a sort of benefactor in that sense because he, by, by, by being so, so as suspicious as he was, he, he enabled Bees United to have a very strong negotiating position with Benham and saying, look, you know, we don't want this to happen again. So, what the system, what was agreed was that Bees United had what's called a special shareholding that is kind of different from a kind of normal equity shareholding, as we called. it, basically says that we have certain rights. Number one right, we have a seat on the board, uh, and that's in the articles of the association, so can't be taken away. And secondly, that the special shareholding gives us blocking powers if uh, they ever wanted to move the ground or sell the ground, unless it meets certain conditions. In other words, we'll only allow you to, do, to move out of this uh, ground or to sell this ground if one, there's an equivalent ground or a, a ground which is equally as good and it's in a defined area, and that's basically an area of West London. It may it probably will be never used that blocking power. And no one wants to to ever use that blocking power. But you know, knowing what we now know, not about Matthew, because actually Murphy's turned out to be even better than we thought. I, I mean, what makes Matthew such an interesting owner? And again, I don't it's not always widely known, but again, with, with your guys, what you're going through, this might be of interest to you. He's, he is so interested that when players are bought and sold, the decisions are made by the t- two directors of football. We have two directors of football. We actually have an owner, a chairman, two directors of football and a chief executive, which may sound a bit over the top, but actually there is a logic to it. But the person who has the final say on the buying and selling players is Matthew Ben himself, because he's interested enough to actually get into the detail of that. And his company that we f- referred to, it, I call it a football research company, is called Smart Odds. And basically, Smart Odds goes into incredible detail uh, researching players and teams in order to provide interesting information for gamblers. But as a result, it has certainly used to have probably more data accessible than a Premier League club. Um, now, I have to say, the word is out, a number of people have caught up. But Brentford Football Club gets, under a very, very reasonable deal, access to all this data about every, pretty much every top European league club and player. And that's how we managed to buy these players from places that no one's ever heard of. And that's that's the extra that Matthew brings to it, that, yeah. which your average owner is never going to bring to it.
2: No, no, of course you you have to like it. I, I liken it to the Moneyball film. If you've seen if you've seen the yeah, Moneyball absolutely. film about American baseball, yeah. I liken it to that. Yes, I, I I did know that that story. You know his background, and and we we've been on the rece- we've been on the receiving end of your owner's uh, expertise and skill. In that you procured from us a central defender called James Tarkowski. For a, a very, very reasonable sum of money. Yeah. And then, and then to add insult to injury, a previous owner then sold the sell-on fee. So Matthew managed to extricate from us the sell-on fee at a discounted price. That, and you later sold James Tarkowski for many millions of pounds to Burnley when yeah. we, we would have received a well over a million pounds in in transfer, in sell on fee. So he, he he's a shrewd businessman, Matthew Benham. I absolutely respect him for that. And if this makes you feel even worse, every time James
3: Tarkovsky plays for England, we get some more money. <laughs>
2: which, which we probably would have got 20% sell on from. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how much money Matthew Benham has put in. It's probably tens of millions of pounds ultimately. It's, it has peaked. It peaked at 110 million pounds. Did it really? But he, yeah. when, I, when I look at your transfer dealings, yeah. Like James Tarkowski, I think you bought from us for 350 grand and sold him for 7 million. You, you, you repeat that exercise multitude of times. He, he must be balancing the book some way. Certainly in transfer dealings, he's, he's definitely in, in the black, not in the red. Well, it's an interesting question that, Andy, because I sit on the audit
3: committee, which, again, again, is another kind of, you know, might sound bureaucratic, but it allows me as a supporter, as representative, just to have, understand what's going on with the money in and the money out. You know, for instance, we sold uh, Ollie Watkins uh, to Villa and we sold Side Ben Rubber to West Ham. And most people say, you know, that was about 50 million pounds. Well, without, you know, revealing anything confidential, you know, let's, let's call it that for the time being. So people say, you know, why haven't we spent 50 million on, on new players? Because actually, at the most, we have spent sort of 10. And the answer is that the gap between the day to day earnings of Brentford Football Club in terms of the normal revenues, you know, tickets, sponsorship and all that and what it costs to run the club is still a big gulf, And yeah. the gulf is covered by those player trading as it's so politely called. Yeah. And so, yeah, last, last year in the last set of accounts, we made a profit, but it, it goes up and down. And the fact is that Matthew has st- his net uh, contribution, if you like, is still uh, towards a hundred million pounds. So, yeah, the fifty million didn't go straight to Matthew's bank account. Like, you know, football account. Football accounting is a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. But if it wasn't, if it wasn't for the player trading, then I'm, you know, I'm not sure we would be solvent. As a result of your special
2: share, I think uh, you have full audit rights of the accounts, and so you have just mentioned that you sit personally on that uh, that audit committee, if you like. So you see yes. everything that happens, and I think that's another incredible, you know, piece of uh, negotiation on behalf of Bees United to make sure that you you, you consistently get that. I'm, I'm not sure we get the same, well, we certainly don't get the same access and respect from our owner, even though we have a seat on the board. Yeah, and, and for, as a
3: further sort of backup, of it, it's like uh, if you like, there is an independent member of that committee who is a very, very specialist accountant, and he's also a supporter. But he's, you know, he's independent of beach united. But it's, again, it enables us to say to, to, the, um, to the supporters, because, you know, you made a point earlier, Andy, about the property money. And let's be clear. I mean, basically, we've got a new stadium and we've sold an old stadium. And how does all that wash, if you like? You know, yeah. uh, as Matthew Benham kind of made money, lost money out of it all? And people are entitled to that. So in last year's accounts, there was a, a sudden, you know, a chunk of money, from property dealings. Um, and now, now that's, we said then that's not going to come in every year. But, you know, I've, I'm able to look at the accounts with the specialist advisor and say, you know, Matthew Benham has been completely straight about this. And, you know, it, he's, he's still, he's, he still owed a lot of money, if you like, for the money he's invested. And my personal view is if there has gone any incidental financial benefit to Matthew along the way, my God, he's earned it.
2: Oh, well, let me ask you this now. On, on the Be- on Bees United website, I can see, 12 listed directors. I think there are 12. I don't know whether there are more, of which you're chair. Yeah. 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 Um, And and you've got a varied set of skills in there. You know, obviously your personal CV is incredibly impressive. I assume, like you just talked about people with expert financial experience. Have you sought to make sure in the creation of Bees United that you have the right skill sets in the right places? Have you actively gone out and tried to recruit people with certain skills? Yes, we have. So, for
3: instance, um, there was a guy who used to sit two seats away from me at Griffin Park who got talking to me one day, and I realized he had all sorts of skills on not so much company um, structures, but actually on sort of not-for-profit society structures. And, of course, that's what we are, a not-for-profit society. Uh, So uh, he joined the board, and then we decided to rewrite all our rules, and he's pretty much rewritten them all. Um, and we had a consultative Zoom the other night in which about 50 members came on Zoom and talked through these changes to the rules. And we had had them checked by a high flying London lawyer who also happens to be a Brentford supporter who did it for, you know, a fiver sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you, you just got to be realistic. If you're going to negotiate with the Benhams of the world, you do need some good people around you.
2: I spoke to uh, the former chair of Portsmouth's Trust. He explained to us the types of skills you need are someone with legal, legal training experience, uh, someone who's very competent financial, you know, finance director or, or uh, of the likes, someone who's a good uh, communication expert. You, you, need a, you need a certain set of skills to make your trust effective. Yes. I think we have but- gaps in some of ours that we need to fill. One sort of final thing just to touch upon is presumably... When, if we go back to the, if I can call them the dark days of Bees United running the club, maybe some people look back at them nostalgically now. But in your hours of need, when you were rattling buckets outside Griffin Park just to stay alive,
0: mm.
2: uh, and Ron Node's still on the, the the Griffin Park, presumably the appointment of Greg Dyke and then the the invitation for Matthew Benham to take involvement were the inspired choices, really, that, that, that set you on the path that you're now on, which is one hopes to become a top-flight club in the not-too-distant future. Presumably, Matthew Benham would only have got involved if you demonstrated you were all competent in the first place. I guess that's what I'm getting at. Do you think you needed to have a successful trust uh, in order to attract the right investment from the right people? Uh, it's a good question. I think
3: the trust needed to be successful enough to show basic competencies to show a kind of uh, financial common sense and to probably to have leverage with the council. Yeah. I think that so that's what Bees United in particular brought to it, and it's not something, and i so say this you know as an admirer of matthew it's not something a gambling company could easily get you know if smart odds had gone to the council and said hey we want to buy a stadium we want to you know he would have said excuse me who are you the fact that we were rooted in the community the fact that we'd even had a council elected you know we represented absolutely the kind of core of the heart of the people of the area and that we'd shown that if you like as fans at the polls we had to be taken seriously by the council so i think had that not happened probably the council would never have done the deal on the land and the new stadium would never have been built. We would have had an alternative scenario, which uh, which would have been... And I think Matthew has never actually spoken about the stadium until he went there. In fact, I know that Matthew never visited the stadium until the day it was opened, which, considering he had 100 million rolling on it, may seem to people a bit strange. And that's because Matthew himself was always interested in the, the play of... Could you use, um, you, you called it moneyball, they don't really like that phrase moneyball, but they can't deny it in places. Could you use moneyball style tactics to move a club up through the leagues and, and get to the Premier League and all the financial benefits that that would have? Um, and, but only it was, was Bees United that kept banging on about the stadium. Um, and so we could have had a different thing, which would stay at Griffin Park um, I mean, if you look at it, Bournemouth, Bournemouth Stadium, was it 11,000? Yeah. Um, um, but again, what you then do is you're just totally reliant on your benefactor. Yeah. Um, and of course, and, you know, and what we now saw in Bournemouth, that runs out after a few years. So, yes, you know, to, to go back to your question, asking Greg to be involved was a great idea by Brian Burgess. Uh, talking to Matthew Bennett was an even more inspired idea. But actually, the heart of this wouldn't have happened without the fans.
0: Great stuff. I really enjoyed that that chat. really enjoyed that interview with um, Stuart. I mean, for me, it just goes to show the importance of fans. I mean, the the interview finished there with him saying exactly that. He finished saying that none of this would have happened without the fans. And custodians come and custodians go of the football club. When we spoke to um, Ashley from the SFA and the former Portsmouth Trust chair, he was telling us about the, the just the, the, the string of owners that they had that were just an, a disaster one after the other. And it seems that until fans, same with Stockport fans, until the fans are able to take hold and stabilise a club, that seems to be, in many cases, what is needed. And what we're trying to do with a podcast, what we're trying to do with these interviews, we're trying, I'm going to read off some um, episodes I'd like people to go back to and listen to, is is to put all this information out there so Oldham fans can listen to it and figure out what it is that we maybe should be doing. And you know, we've I've, there's been a few people, I've, we've read a few comments and things that people post on Twitter and in, or, or in the Blues or wherever, saying that, you know, listening to this podcast, it's just a case of listening to things over and over again. You know, you know it's all right, you're, you're talking about this and you're ranting about that, what are you going to do about it? But there has to be a process of information gathering and understanding and learning before we can go ahead and do whatever it is that we feel we need to do. And I think that an interview like that is really, really invaluable. And I hope that a lot of people have listened to it and have realized all the different points along that interview that are relevant to us. So many things, Andy, as you were talking to him, I would imagine were just like just ringing true to, to, to our experience at Latics.
2: Yeah, totally. This all started for for Brentford and their supporters because they had a a litany of owners that were using Griffin Park as collateral in in their games, in in, in effect. And and they they wanted to secure uh, a a piece of land to build a new stadium on and that was their primary focus. So so they really sort of ignored uh, what division they were in or what centre forward they had or they just concentrated on that one, one factor. Um, to try to secure the future of their club. And and in doing so, they realised that they needed to have a a lot of support from their supporter base. So they need to be well organised, recruit the right people in the organisation to understand it. They also need to influence the council. Uh, They needed to raise money. They needed to uh, network. Uh, Ultimately, after some period of time, they needed a chief executive to run the, the football company who understood it. And then ultimately, eventually, they struck lucky with Matthew Benham, you can argue you make your own look, I think. Definitely. And a lot of that sort of preparatory work that have been that you know, the, the groundwork they've been putting in over a period of years led them to a point where they found somebody who was competent, successful, and wealthy, who was prepared to put some money in. Uh, and, and to see where they are. But, you know, even then, they've gone beyond that point. They've got that golden share which secures the new land. It can never be taken from them. They've got that security anyway, whether Matthew Benham stays or goes or sells to someone else. It's just a brilliant story, I think, of of putting the the supporters and the, and the football club first. And, and I'm not having anybody tell me that Brentford are any... Any bigger than lattice Because they're not absolutely <laughs> so not. No. Really, you know, we, we should be looking at that and saying to ourselves, "That's what could be achieved if we focused on the right things, uh, particularly from within our trust." You know, and, and the other things in that story, which is really interesting. You know, we've got Will Will's on from Push the Boundary. They, they had the same setup. They had a they had a, a fanzine called Besotted, which turned into a podcast and a website, like or oh, When the Blues. Uh, they had a a supporters group, independent supporters group, which is called Bias, just like push the boundary. They've got a trust called Bees United, just like Trust Alden. We've got all the facets
0: there. Interestingly, Andy Bias, he said in the interview, set up Bees United. Yes. So, and and they were two distinctly separate but connected groups. Yeah. And one was doing one work, one was doing one thing, and one was doing another thing. And obviously, Will, you have experience of being in the trust, and obviously you're one of the founding members that pushed the boundary. So presumably you understand, well, I know it's not presumably, we've spoken about it, we all understand what the importance of having these two groups working in Unison is. A different approach from Brentford, but ultimately the same outcome is what we're looking for, isn't it? That cooperation.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're all looking to work for the fans and make sure the club's being run the right way. I just think historically with the trust, I think they're being wary about rocking the boat um with the position that they that they have at the moment, so it's slightly different to to the Brentford situation where the trust set up this supporters association and it was you know before anything happened about having a seat on the board and everything so they going into that position with the seat on the board, the owners have always known that there's a trust and then they're connected to the the supporters association, but I think with push the boundary. Kind of wrongly, in my opinion, seen as the bad guys by the club. Um, if I think the trust, if they try and associate themselves with us, it, that might affect them negatively with discussions with the club.
2: If, if you look at the Brentford story in a bit more, de- I, I, would, I would, I think, we mentioned it in in the interview there. And uh, for any Latics fan, go on, go on YouTube and search uh, "Push Up Brentford." It's an hour long documentary. You've got an hour to kill. It's a really, really light uh, and an easy hour, an easy watch for an hour. Yeah,
0: it's a nice film.
2: And it's a, it's a really nice film, and it, but it's just got some um, really, really compelling bits in there, uh, especially towards the end when you understand that, that story. I, I can't imagine when, when Ron Nodes was uh, taken over at Brentford. So to be clear, this was a man who wanted to own the club and manage it. <laughs> <coughs> he wants to live out his sort of... His... Hang,
0: on, hang on a minute. This is ringing. This is yeah, sounding
2: exactly. familiar, this. <laughs> He wants to, to, to live out his, his football manager fantasy by owning a football club. Now, for, for a period of time, for a period of time, uh, that was okay because they because they did all right. Yeah, unlike us, <laughs> they did all right with with that sort of uh, football manager setup. What what he was doing is he was let he was he was uh, lending the club money and making them director loans and just basically saddling the club with debt in order to do that. And he was and he was doing securing some some loans against Griffin Park the the, the land because before he arrived they were largely solvent uh, until that point and then by the time by the time that. That he eventually left, which was in the middle 2000s, when Matthew Benham eventually paid him off. He, they were in for seven million quid, so I know that much. So seven million quid was cleared in the end. Uh, but that that was debt, as as well as the as well as the sort of value value of the land. And we're talking about land here in West London, which is going to be much more expensive than land in Oldham. But now, I, when Bias were campaigning to uh, Bias was set up actually to, to get rid of the previous owner. When Bias were doing that, I can't imagine they were particularly Warm, you know, the club. I can't imagine Ron knows liked bias is what I'm getting at. Yeah. So yeah. I, in, in the same vein that in the same vein that the club are not big fans of push the boundary because you ask difficult questions, it, it's tantamount to the same thing. Well, Bees United obviously took a more conciliatory tone, a more professional tone, and ultimately Ron knows eventually said, uh, "You can have it. Don't, I'm not bothered. Uh, Brentford Football Club Limited is is." Is a noose around my neck, I don't want it, you have it. He just gave it to him, and then they ran it for a few years. But he kept the asset, the hard asset. Again, does this sound like anything? <laughs> no, he kept the hard asset to himself, which ultimately had to be purchased in the end. And, and where this leads to me is, in order for us to move on and have a bright future again, really, and truth, we've got to sort out a land issue. And that's got to come first. We, we've, we've got to resolve that first. Yeah. And, uh, if, if I were If I were running our trust... I would be focusing my attention on networking with business people in the Northwest, trying to find sympathetic people towards our cause, ideally Latics fans, but it doesn't have to be, that might be interested or have skills that can, help, that can help us. And they need to be doing a number on the council. And really, truthfully, I mean, it wasn't that story about the council wasn't helping Brentford. The only professional football club in that council borough, by the way. Hansel Council has one professional football club, and that's Brentford. OMBC has one professional football club, and that's Latics. They weren't helping them, so they thought, right, we're going to get someone elected then. Yeah, that's
0: brilliant, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? I right, love it that.
1: Absolutely brilliant. I mean, that's and, like the Stockport, isn't it? Stockport story, that.
0: Yeah, yeah. and and what, what Andy has done, because if you've not gathered by now, Andy is a very diligent young man. This is what I see. I have limited skills. I have limited knowledge, right? So I have to bring people in to help with the podcast because that's what you do, like trust order need to do. You can only do so much yourself. Acknowledge and accept what your limitations are, what your strengths and skills are, and then fill the gaps. So what we've done is we've drawn up, we call it the war room, right? Think Churchill, underground bunker, moving pieces around, big charts on the wall. It's not like that. It would be nice if it was. But, you know, identifying who is who or who the players are and understanding, you know, who we need to speak to, who's responsible for what, who's influential, who isn't, blah, blah, blah. You had a look, Andy, at the council, didn't you, in Oldham? And you got digging and you started having a look at who the councillors are. And you went a little bit further and, and started stalking them all on social media and tried to identify their football allegiances I did. And whether they had any or not, it's probably a good point in this for you to take over and tell us what you discovered when you did that. Because obviously, Alden Council, you would expect to find when you were, uh, you colour coded it, didn't you? And you would have expected to find some royal blues, well, quite a few royal blues in there representing Alden. But that's not how it turned out, is it?
2: No. I mean, here's a question for you, yeah. I don't live in Oldham Metropolitan Borough Council. Now, do you, Matt? How many councillors make up the full council? Got any idea? You know?
1: No, sorry. Uh, and, this, and, this is,
2: and this is the point, really. There's 58 councillors make up, make up OMBC. Who's the leader of the councils? You know?
1: Can't remember his name. I can see Sean his Sean Fielding. Sean That's Fielding
2: is his name. He's the leader of the council. He's in Failsworth. But it's 58. 58 councillors anyway that make up the council. How many of those 58 are uh, the Labour Party? A lot. Yeah. Forty-four to fifty-eight are Labour. There are eight Liberal Democrats, four Tories, and two independents. To just give you an idea of the makeup. When you when you start to look at them and you can do a bit of stalking on social media, <laughs> which makes me sound a very very strange, man. Thank you, Matthew. No, um, but when you when you starts to look, look them up, I, I, a lot of them are quite professional about their sort of how they present themselves, so they don't necessarily give it away. But I did find, uh, I found four bona fide City fans, three three Man United fans. A Blackburn Rovers fan, he should be chased out of town. <laughs> and then two, seemingly, two West Ham fans, from, from what I could tell. And then and then the rest of them didn't necessarily, either weren't on social media or, or didn't give themselves away. I didn't find a single Latix fan. This is the type of thing that we need to think about. Yeah, um, We need Latix fans sympathetic to our cause in the council. We could do with either finding some that were already there and then trying to build a relationship with them, or... You know, even consider genuinely considering doing what what um what the Brentford fans did to well, try to fight fair change.
0: It all comes back to Sports Park 2000, doesn't it? It, it comes back to to, to to when Blitz and Corny and um Danny Gazelle took over Latix, they obviously realised you know that the value of the club was in the land and that in order to 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 change the fortunes of the club, what they needed to do was to sell the land that Boundary Park was on, buy somewhere else, build a new stadium, incorporate all the facilities oh. that you needed to into into that, and a new era could begin for Old Athletic. That process got to a certain point and was scuppered by the council. That is been and gone. And the Limbies. That's history. Whatever we want to look back at it and say who was to blame, whatever. Okay but it's done. So there's no point blaming the council for that. This council now for that, because that was a good number of years ago. Obviously it leaves a bit of taste in the mouth. The football fans don't forget it. But what it does is it, in the minds of Oldham fans, it says you can't trust the council. The council aren't interested. And that may very well be the case. And that might be true. But what you've said there, Andy, is make the council interested. And if you can't make the council interested, Make up the council, <laughs> get your own people Not on them. there. Yeah, yeah, no, I, Find out who it is that's within no, our fan base that would make a really good counselor that can go on, can yeah. go in there and start yeah. influencing from the inside.
1: What are the expenses like? Are there anything like him?
0: It, well, I, 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 bet it's, it's, I bet the expenses in any part of the public
2: sector are absolutely, you, know, you, you you may not be paid a lot as a as a as a first growth salary, but I, I bet the gravy train is just there to be milked. Any part of the public sector,
0: and that's why most people get on it. Then they don't do a fucking thing of any use because it's yes. sit comfortable and all that. So this is where football, and I'm only a little bit political here because we are talking politics. But this is where football, its purest, can have a real effect to change the way that things are done. Because if you, we've seen you can allow shizers in to come in, take over football clubs, try and exploit this, try and exploit that. But ultimately, once the fans are in control, all the fans care about is the longevity and stability of the football club. They're not looking to enrich themselves. They're not looking to line their own pockets. They're not trying to get rich and make a quick book. They will give up their own time freely. They will volunteer they will come together with people of different backgrounds, different political allegiances, all the rest of it, because that's what football does. So you don't give a shy who the person next to you voting for on the terrace is when, you're, when you've just scored a goal and you're all cheering. It doesn't matter. That's what football does. That's what the power of football is within a community. And that's why fans, by taking control of their football club and saying this is an important institution that needs to live on, that needs to be secure it can have such a massive ripple effect through the whole town. And that is why if this is our opportunity, this is our time to to, to realize that and understand that and try and do something about it. What what that Brentford interview told me and what it absolutely showed the gulf between what they've done and what all have, or where we're at at the minute with our trust is it's all about influence. And it's all about setting the, setting the trust up the right way. And, once this trust is set up the right way and it's working well within itself, then it's like it starts to gather momentum and it starts to attract people with greater influence to it. And then that attracts people with greater influence to it. And it starts to starts to spiral, starts to, to rotate, and it starts to pick up gravity and starts pulling things in. And we're, we're, we've not got to that point. I mean, we, our trust has been in settle for a long time now and it's at it's, it's, its weakest point. That it's ever been. It's not gathering strength and gathering momentum. It's going the opposite way. Now, like I said on last week's podcast, the trust has said that they'll be on in April. They're not very forthcoming with wanting to, to, to get involved with this podcast and to and to talk out. And I don't think it's because we're being critical of them. I just, I just, I'm not sure that the that the maybe understand the the potential benefits of it or whatever. What I did was made a couple of notes on on some of the podcasts that I think people should go back and listen to if they haven't listened to them already. And one of them is the Trust Oldham one, episode 15, is the Trust Oldham interview. Also, there was a bonus episode called A Warning from the Orient, which was from Leighton Orient's Trust. I think people should go back and listen to that. First two or three, two and three episodes, early season wars really, were, were, were kind of going on about where we're at, they're good episodes to listen to. Episode 18 is Carl Evans and episode 22 is the SFA. There's common themes running through all of these and it is the ineffectiveness of our trust and what that does to, you know, to us in terms of, it doesn't matter how things are going with the club. It doesn't matter if things are going well or things are going bad. The trust should operate the same all the way through. It needs to be solid and strong and, and, and have the resources at its disposal as and when they are needed. You never know what's going to happen with football. You never know when things are going to just collapse or things are just going to, everything appears to be rosy in the garden and then all of a sudden the something just crashes, whatever. So the trust needs to be in a constant state of readiness and it, and it just isn't. So so it, we keep I mean, coming back to these things, don't we? And it clearly comes back to what do we do about it? What can we do about it? Will what were you going to say there, I mate? Mean? I
1: was just going to say when you like you listen to um, the Brentford, you know, he's he's a guy that's that's been very professional, like his career, like the top of his career, yeah. And maybe we need someone like that in there, you know, someone with a lot of experience, someone really professional to lead it forward and get get those kind of people on board with the trust. Um, I'm not talking about maybe like retired policemen because we've been down that route. Um but you know I've, they they need people still I think.
0: They do and they need it needs new blood it needs new ideas it needs new energy it needs to, we need to find the right people that that can do that influ and, and it, what I'm getting from all from 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 Andy's interview there is you know influence connections networks that's what's really really important you know the trust can't do that then it's not going to be that much use and like you said in the interview andy the trust does all the dog work the hard work the boring work the the nitty gritty stuff it gets down with all the all the legislation that's why you need experts and professionals in that capacity in the trust and that's why something like push the boundary has to have a more common touch insofar as it communicates with the fan base and gets the fan base on side to echo what, ultimately what the trust want to do, but it just comes, the messaging and how it done, it it, it kind of filters through from the fans through to the trust and from the trust through to the fans. And and Push to boundary would would be in in, in the way that this would work would be in the middle of that. The trust itself operates like a, a proper company, board, whatever, professionally it deals with the club on, in the right professional manner, it deals with the council, it deals with the local businesses, and it operates at that level, which most of us as fans don't have the network, context, experience and skills to do because it takes a certain type of person. That's fine. So there's always going to be that slight disconnect between the fans, your average fan, who go to the football, want to get a few beers in, a a pie, talk about, shite with them, <laughs> and do the normal stuff. And, and then the other side of that, the, prof- the professional fan who is at the top of their game in their in their chosen career is a finance expert, is a communications expert, is a media expert, is a, a, lo- a, a, a lawyer, whatever it is at the top of the game. These are the people we need to find, and it's and it's just creating that that flow from that trust from the trust through the supporters' club to the fans and back. And once you can once we can get that going, and that's why the trust need to sort their head out and say, without push the boundary, we do not have that flow, we do not have that connection. They need to come on in the next week or two and tell us what they're doing at the top end on the things that they are responsible for, which is that on the professional side, give us some kind of clarity and comfort us a bit so to say, yeah, you know what, we're on this and this is what we're doing. And then we can say, okay. That's great you get on with it and then if they open up dialogue with you will which you know they haven't really yet and you know you're going to the next meeting is it on the 7th of April I think it yeah, is I think, that's think it. so that that dialogue is properly open and that that relationship is open because we have to we have to demand it don't we as fans because that's the that's the that's the trinity The Boundary Park Alert System is a Studio 6 production. It's hosted, edited and mixed by me, Matt Dean, and you can contact me on Twitter at Dublin OAFC. If you'd like to get in touch with us or contribute to the show, our email is bpalertsystem at gmail.com and we're on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at OAFC Podcast. If you'd like to know more about Push the Boundary, you can visit pushtheboundary.co.uk and follow them on Twitter at ptb underscore OAFC. The title music for the show is Delirio by Manchester DJ and producer Starian. You can visit redlaserrecords.bandcamp.com for more info and the latest releases. If you like the show, please do review and subscribe on whichever platform you listen. Thanks for listening.